This is a download of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. For more information, go to the website, www.press.uchicago.edu. Hello, and welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the new podcast from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Jan Van Meter about his new book, Tippecanoe and Tyler II, Famous Slogans and Catchphrases in American History. Jan Van Meter is a former public relations executive, CIA intelligence analyst, English professor, and speechwriter. This is his first book. Jan Van Meter, thanks for taking time to talk to the University of Chicago Press today. It's quite all right. I'm looking forward to it. So what is the difference between a slogan and a catchphrase? Well, the categories are fairly blurry, but the way I envision them is that a slogan, which comes from an old Scottish word meaning battle cry, are really calls to action. They can be explicit calls to action, like don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes, or they can be implicit calls. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, is implicitly a call to action that just doesn't have the word vote for. Um, and they're kept by society. It's an another way of saying remembered by society, because one of the importance of the moment or the event that they sort of stand for, like a house divided against itself cannot stand, obviously stands for the struggle against slavery, uh, or they're remembered because of the value that they teach explicitly or implicitly that the society wants to see ingrained and continued give me liberty or give me death is probably the best example of that. But there are many of them. Catchphrases, on the other hand, are not calls to action. They're really, they embody sort of statements of belief or articulations of values that whether we wish to remember them or not, uh, they are ingrained in the culture then and still are. If they die out as values, the catchphrases tend to die out, too. Uh, And like slogans, their values can be negative, like, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, or nice guys finish last. Or they're positive, like Kilroy was here, or three yards in a cloud of dust. Uh, The point here, I think, is important is that slogans and catchphrases don't just come from politics or from warfare, which is how they're in many ways best known, but they come from all the ways that our culture uh, manifests itself. Uh, Sports, entertainment, as well as the more obvious politics and warfare. So the subtitle of the book is Famous Slogans and Catchphrases in American History. Is there a particular resonance for America to deal with slogans and catchphrases, particularly as the country developed in the 19th century? Uh, yeah, there is. Uh, it was near the end of the 19th century that an American historian, an important one named Albert Beveridge, recognized that the, side, that the society was building an arsenal of slogans, and he thought that was worth remarking upon. Uh, and it isn't so much the slogans and catchphrases were themselves important in the 19th century as it was that the history that they allude to was important. It was amazing to me that within years of the end of the Revolutionary War, 
prominent people, like Noah Webster, for example, began worrying that the young people were already ignorant of what their parents and grandparents had been through during the early struggles of the country, especially the revolution. Uh, moreover, immigrants were flooding in to the country and similarly had no sense of our own history. And these people were worried that without a sense of the history, that we, they would the country would lose its important political, uh, particularly political and social values. Uh, his, the writing of history books begins almost immediately. In fact, one of the first ones was actually being written during the Revolutionary War. And the teaching of history began uh, both informally and formally in what schools existed, not just as a means of imparting knowledge but more important for these people of preserving the ethos of the United States. And slogans then began to appear in these histories, particularly the ones written for young people. The first was probably, don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes. Uh, and, but it was soon followed by Nathan Hale's, I only regret uh, that I have only one life to lose for my country. Sometimes they were just plain made up. The most famous one is Parson Weems's statement or recording that Washington, who had chopped down the cherry tree, said, I cannot tell a lie. Uh, of course, that <laughs> never happened, but that was around for a very long time. Uh, but these slogans, catchphrases, were used for their ability to bring life to sort of drab facts, and drama, to dusty events, which is sort of the way history was taught early on. When the, in the mid-19th century, with the growth of regional and even national newspapers, uh, with their critical need to attract advertisers and advertising dollars as well as readers, uh, the newspapers used the slogans and catchphrases uh, as a, for headlines as a way of drumming up reader interest, I, both those that survived and those which are pretty much lost. Um, not many people remember don't cheer boys they're dying uh, or two pounds of roast beef and uh, one day of work but they were there once uh, it was only near the end of 19th century that I mentioned that historians even began to notice that this was going on in the country so is it important and I was thinking about this, the difference between, say, a slogan, a catchphrase, or just a proverb or an aphorism, is it important for people to know who coined the catchphrase or who coined the slogan, who to attribute the saying to that separates it maybe from a proverb? It's interesting to know who said it. It may be important depending on what the slogan or the catchphrase refers to, but generally it's not. What's important is the value that is imparted or the moment or trend in history it refers to so that you can have proverbs and most cultures have them but they don't refer specifically to an american value give me liberty or give me death is a very american kind of value other cultures may share it but this country was really in many ways built upon it uh, a penny saved is a penny earned uh, which is in Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, is not uniquely American, nor does it refer to anything except a sort of general Protestant ethic of saving. 
but it is not uniquely American. Nice guys finish last. Um, Leo DeRocher is is in many ways a very uniquely American attitude. When I was growing up, I was a huge baseball fan, and DeRocher's autobiography, uh, <laughs> I loved I that love book. <laughs> Only to realize once I read yours, it's like, oh, my God, he was he was lying so much during that book. Or, or he was being very selective with what he was choosing to talk about in, uh, in, in Nice yeah, Guys it, Finish Last. Well, evidently, I mean, DeRocher is sort of a hideous human being in many, many ways, Uh on the other hand, you know, he came, he came up from terrible circumstances and he had to make his way, but you probably know that uh, he was generally regarded as a thief and a liar and is, I forget in which, there is a Damon Runyon short story which has him as a character, although he's not named, in which he's caught stealing. We'll be back with the second part of this interview with Jan Van Meter in just a moment. Tippecanoe and Tyler Two: Famous Slogans and Catchphrases in American History by Jan Van Meter is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available at bookstores everywhere. News and information about the latest Chicago books can be found at www.press.uchicago.edu. The Press website has excerpts and other online features, and of course, a secure shopping cart for your orders. The Press blogs about its books at pressblog.uchicago.edu. And now back to talking to Jan Van Meter about his book, Tippecanoe and Tyler Two: Famous Slogans and Catchphrases in American History. What were your criteria for adding a slogan or catchphrase to this book? Well, there were sort of three. First, and the simplest, is did I remember it? Uh, I'm of an age when this is how I learned American history in elementary school. And in the small biographies about American major figures that we all took out of the library in the fourth and fifth grade, um, and it's how people would ask me questions, particularly when I was in graduate school, foreign students would say, who was Joe, and why should he say it ain't so? And I would tell them the story about that, or a South African doctor who lives near me asked me once, why does everybody say, what's up, doc, and laugh hysterically? So I'd have to tell them about that. Um, but I also noticed that among people who are under the age of 35 don't know these. Um, and um, that started to trouble me for some reason. Uh, so I ended up telling people at work these stories. The second way the criteria was, was it a way into a story, a story that enlightened a moment in time in our history or showed how it spread in the society. Uh, the nice one for this is particularly, uh, speaks awfully but carry a big stick, which was actually repeated three times uh, with nobody noticing until the third time when the third time Roosevelt was actually president and then it became noticed in the Chicago newspapers particularly and spread almost immediately into other kinds of headlines. The third criteria was, did the slogan or catchphrase throw light on a wider issue or a trend in the development of the country, whether politically, economically, or socially? Uh, because I really see each of these as a way into American history and that it's important uh, for that reason. 
You know, there's only one phrase in this book. Well, you obviously know you wrote this book that was developed by an ad agency, and that was Leo Burnett in Chicago who came up with you came, You've Come a Long Way Baby. Now, given the fact that Madison Avenue and the American advertising industry is in business to make catchy, catchy slogans and catchphrases, why did this one make the cut as opposed to the countless others they put out during the 20th century? Well, You've Come a Long Way Baby works for a couple of reasons. And the most important one for me was that it opened a way to talk about the growth of feminism in the 60s and 70s and to talk about the rise and fall of the uh, Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution. Um, But it also allowed for a kind of ironic look at the ability of advertising to feed off a societal trend in ways that have nothing to do with the trend and everything to do with exploiting it for marketing purposes. Uh, I mean, the irony of of promoting smoking for women as a way of telling them that they come a long way, uh, sort of obvious. Uh, But society itself picked up the phrase and used it in other contexts, perpetuating it, and that's one of the ways in which a slogan or a catchphrase does perpetuate itself. You know, which twin has the Tony or you'll wonder where the yellow went, just don't have those kind of possibilities. Uh, I knew all of the phrases in this book, not to pat myself on the back too much, and I'm just over that 35-year-old cut. But there was <laughs> one I didn't know, and that was millions for defense, but not a cent for tribute. Never heard that one before. What's the origin of this saying? It comes from uh, an early a war that nobody's ever heard of, which has been known to historians anyway, is called the Quasi-War. Uh, it, happened, it started in the mid-1790s, uh, when the British were, as they usually were at, their, at that time, at war with France, although this time the government was uh, the post-revolutionary Republican France. And Washington, uh, who was near the, nearing the end of his second term, declared the nation neutral, and because he did not want to get involved with the war between England, which was still uh, sitting both in Canada and also refusing to withdraw from its force in the United States. Um, but also he didn't want to get involved in, with a war in Europe, even though the neutrality that he declared was being violated by both combatants. The French were enraged by the American refusal to honor its treaty obligations for, uh, to France for the, their assistance in our own revolution. So the French broke off diplomatic relations, refused to pay any of its debts, confiscated the American merchant ships, and used privateers to attack American shipping. Uh, by this time, when things really got bad, John Adams was president. So he sent three men as a mission to Paris to solve the problem. Uh, Charles Pinckney, John Marshall, who later became Chief Justice, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, who is only really remembered now because of the term gerrymandering. Um, But he was also very sympathetic to the French and close to Jefferson, who was Adams' major rival. So all three guys got to Paris in October of 1797, and they met with the foreign minister, uh, Talleyrand, and Talleyrand, who knew the United States pretty well, he had spent several years in America, and he told him he was working on a memorandum on the problem, and it'd be done in a couple of days, and he'd meet with him again. In fact, they never, they didn't see him again for five months, uh, but he did 
keep contact with them because he kept sending emissaries to tell them that there were a number of conditions that had to be met by the Americans before there would be any negotiation. And there were two, there were a number of sticking points, but two, the chief among them were that the French government wanted a huge loan, and Talleyrand himself wanted a serious bribe. And for the four months, the Americans refused all the demands, uh, the loan because it would violate the neutrality of the United States, and the bribe to Talleyrand because it offended the American morality. John Marshall had been ordered to keep in touch with the United States, even though that, of course, took months because the only way to get messages was to put them on a boat. So he sent a series of coded uh, reports to the American Secretary of State. And when they finally reached the Secretary of State and President Adams, Adams, among other things, ordered the mission to come come back unless they'd made progress since the last report. In fact, by this time, the French had kicked them out of the country. And Marshall was the first one to get back. Um, And he found that all three of them, particularly him, because he'd written the reports, were heroes in the United States uh, because of their principled stand. And at a dinner in Marshall's honor in Philadelphia, which was at that point one of the temporary capitals in the United States, it was attended by nearly everyone of importance in the government. A congressman whose name is Robert Goodloe Harper of South Carolina rose to give the 13th and final toast of the evening. And he raised his glass and said, Millions for defense, but not a cent for tribute. And everybody roared its <laughs> approval. Uh, the French quickly backed down, realizing they'd made a mistake, uh, and stopped the quasi-war. The irony here is the United States had been paying tribute money to the Barbary states of North Africa for years uh, in order to stop them being pirates against the American shipping in the Mediterranean. And they would continue to pay uh, tribute until 1801 when uh, we went in and wiped out the pirates. So finally, any catchphrases or slogans that just missed the cut that we might see in Tippecanoe and Tyler 2? Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. Um <laughs> Well, there's, there's a, I mean, there are a whole bunch of them because this, we really are a nation of slogans and catchphrases. The problem is too many of them are made up by, uh, you know, public relations departments. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, I have not yet begun to fight John Paul Jones uh, in 1779 uh, as he was engaged in a battle against the British ship. Um, one you may not know is shoot if you must this old gray head, but spare your country's flag, she said, which is in a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier, Barbara Fritchie. There's I Like Ike, 1952, and Crack is Whack. Hmm. So Uh there's, there's four that span most of the history. Well, I will put in my own request for one that came from my from my back. Um, the slogan, uh, please pass the biscuits, Pappy. I don't know that one. Ah, please pass the biscuits, Pappy. I'm, I'm from Kansas, but uh, my family lived in Texas for a while, and that was a very famous electoral slogan put out by Leo Pappy McDaniel, who owned a biscuit-making company and became governor of Texas through that. And uh, please pass, I mean, to his dying day, my grandfather could still remember, please pass the biscuits, Pappy. I 
I lived in Texas for a few years too, and I, it's a great state for for uh, for slogans and for its politics. They had the only state senator I've ever heard of whose name was Mad Dog. <laughs> Mad, I forget his first name, but his nickname was Mad Dog, and his last name was Mingden. And among other things, he advocated the death penalty for marijuana possession. Well, and on that note, Jan, <laughs> Jan Van Meter, the author of Tippecanoe and Tyler, two famous slogans and catchphrases in American history. Thanks for talking to the University of Chicago Press today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this download from the University of Chicago Press. Additional episodes can be found on iTunes or on any podcast aggregator. Your comments and questions are always welcome. And the email address for the show is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Copyright 2008, the University of Chicago Press. All rights reserved. <laughs>